Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, this is Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. And that's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor James Stein will join us to discuss everyday mathematics. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, mathematics is often viewed as a useful, if sometimes arcane and abstract subject. However, the practical application of mathematics in everything from car repair to modern physics has created and defined much of our modern world. Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Professor James Stein. Professor Stein is a professor of mathematics at the California State University in Long Beach, and he has penned the new book, How Math Explains the World, A Guide to the Power of Numbers from Car Repair to Modern Physics. Professor Stein, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it's really our pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating book, uh, talking about the development of mathematics and its impact in our modern world. I'm curious, how did you come to actually uh, decide to write this book? Well, during the 20th century, there were three results that were mathematically related that always interested me. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle, everybody's fairly familiar with, and that's fairly well known. Their incompleteness theorem that Gerdell proved about mathematics is also a little less well-known. And finally, the last result that Kenneth Arrow proved about the impossibility of finding a perfect system for implementing democracy, that, even though it won a Nobel Prize in economics, is not quite so well-known. And all these three results are related in that they tell us something about the limitations of our universe, what we can do, what we can know, what we can accomplish. And I thought that it was very interesting that people should know that there are things that mathematics has done to find out the limits to what could be accomplished. This is very interesting because uh, most people would view mathematics almost as being a very absolute and defined subject. But as you say, for example, with the Heisenberg and Sinner principle, what it's shown is that, in fact, the universe itself might be fundamentally uncertain. Well, it is fundamentally uncertain in the sense that there are quantities that not only can we not know, we cannot actually be sure that they exist to the nth decimal position. And that was something that turned out to be the type of thing that I found was happening with some degree of frequency in the sense that when you discover that there's some sort of limit or dead end, normally you think, okay, that's it. But It's turned out that throughout history, when we've hit dead ends in mathematics or the sciences, they haven't been so much impenetrable barriers, but they've caused us to go in new directions and discover new things. For instance, when you look at the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is a part of quantum mechanics, virtually all the electronic paraphernalia that we see today, the magnetic resonance imagers, the lasers, etc., that's all due to quantum mechanics, and I don't think we'd have it had we not discovered these particular limits to the physical universe. Maybe it might be worth explaining exactly what is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle for those who don't know. 
Okay, well, I think I'd almost rather have a physicist do a really <laughs> top-notch job of explaining it. But basically, it says that there are quantities called conjugate variables. Two examples of conjugate variables are position and momentum or velocity. You cannot know exactly where something is and where it's going simultaneously. Um, if you know where it is, you don't know exactly where it's going. If you know where it's going, you don't know exactly where it is. And I think a more common example of this that people understand a little better is the relation between the frequency and duration of a note. The shorter the note is, the less likely you'll be able to tell what pitch the note is. If somebody plays a middle C and holds it for a long period of time, you know what the note is. But on the other hand, if somebody just plays a note real fast, you won't be able to, to determine exactly what it is. Hmm. So was the mathematical apparatus developed before the physical uh, interpretation of it really uh, came to the front? Yes, there's some instances in which mathematics has gone considerably ahead of the physics that uses it. Certainly in the case of quantum mechanics, the mathematics was probably well known maybe half a century before. But sometimes mathematics just lies around because mathematicians have developed it and mathematicians are just interested in the mathematics generally not necessarily so familiar with either engineering or scientific applications. And Italian mathematicians did much to develop differential geometry in the latter portion of the 19th century. Nobody really figured out a good use for it, and then all of a sudden Einstein comes along maybe 30 years afterwards and uses it for the theory of relativity. And the study of shapes and the various properties of shapes, that's differential geometry, and that was the branch of mathematics that had been essentially discovered and developed 30 years earlier. It's hmm, fascinating. And you have a very interesting story in the very beginning of the book uh, about the famous uh, mathematician Hardy commenting how he thought that much of his work wouldn't have any practical application, yet to this day it's very, very important in cryptography. Yeah, you know, that always amazed me because Hardy was not only one of the great mathematicians of the early 20th century, but there's a wonderful book that he wrote called A Mathematician's Apology. And in reading this book, there's a certain tone of arrogance that sort of pervades it, possibly because Hardy was a member of the British upper classes, or at least it appears that way. And the impression that you get from Hardy is that, well, this is what I've done with my life. I think it's beautiful. I know it's not ever going to be worth much. But nonetheless, I had so much pleasure discovering the beauty in mathematics that I don't feel that I've wasted my life at all, even though I feel I've done nothing whatsoever that will ever be of use to anyone. He, he basically states that quite explicitly in his book. And then all of a sudden, 30 or 40 years later, the problems on which Hardy worked, which were basically problems involving how do you factor numbers and how difficult is it to factor numbers, turns out to be the basis of modern cryptography, and it's the reason that it's going to take hackers an awfully long time to, to get at your bank account because the principles of modern cryptography basically involve the difficulty of factoring very, very large numbers. And I think Hardy would be amazed had he found this out. You know, there's also a cautionary tale for mathematicians and those who denigrate pure mathematics in this. You don't know what's going to be used. I, there's an awful lot of mathematics that exists now that strikes me as very, very ivory tower stuff. But who knows, 30 years from now, somebody might have discovered an application for it. Right. In case with a lot of things in science, you go down one road and it winds up leading to an advance in another. 
I think that's the history of science. And it's, of course, one of the things that happens when you read books on science. And I must admit, I've enjoyed a lot of really good books on science. But uh, one that I really enjoyed was Connections by James Burke, which was written in the early 1970s and made into several very popular television series. And it turns out that many great developments were the result of very, very odd confluence of science, technology, mathematics, and history. And you don't know which developments are going to lead to what. Uh, I'm curious about Arrow's theorem, which suggests that there might not be a perfect democracy. Um, it doesn't suggest <laughs> it. It flat out states it. <laughs> <laughs> In the, uh, uh, what Arrow's theorem says is that any time you have three candidates in an election, there's basically no way of perfectly implementing the views of the individual voters incorporating them into a system. And we can actually see a good example of this if you just imagine an election in which you have three candidates and no candidate gets a majority of the votes. Of course, if you know somebody gets a majority of the votes, that's it. But um, there are several things that are done when you have a situation where none of the candidates gets a majority of the votes. In some instances, they just take the person who wins, who gets the most votes. That's the winner. But in other cases, there's a runoff off between the first two. And what can happen if you have a runoff between the first two is that the people who voted for the candidate that was eliminated might prefer the runner-up and enable the runner-up to win. And even though this is a very simple example of the type of thing that exists, it turns out that it's indicative of the general situation. If you are going to try to take the individual ballots of the voters and try to find a mathematical system which translates them into the preference of, of the entire electorate in such a way that certain what Arrow called nice uh, requirements are satisfied, you can't do it. It doesn't say you can't have an election. It doesn't say you can't have a democracy. But it does say that if you want certain characteristics of the voting system to be maintained, you can't do that. Some of the examples of uh, these characteristics are you wouldn't want to have a dictator in a democracy. That's pretty obvious. And you also wouldn't want to have a situation such as if a loser dies during an election, the outcome of the election is changed. But nonetheless, surprisingly, there are instances in which we've had elections in which had a loser died and had a certain system for translating votes into the vote of the electorate as a whole been in place, the death of the loser would have changed the outcome of the election. I must admit, I was very surprised when I looked at that. The first time that I saw that, I said to myself, well, I know that the death of a winner is obviously going to change the result of the election, but it's surprising that the death of a loser can change the election, too. And in what way does that affect the outcome of an election? Well, it depends upon the electoral method being used. It, it's a little technical and gets into numbers, but it's the same type of thing as, as I illustrated before with three different candidates. What can happen is that if you have a ballot in which the voters mark their preferences in order, they don't just say, I want this guy, but I vote for the following three choices in order, number one, number two, and number three, 
it turns out that there are situations in which no matter what electoral system you used, you can show that it's a numerical thing. And, you know, I don't want to just talk specific numbers on this program, but there's an example in the book that no matter who wins an election, if another person dies, the result of the election flip-flops. When I saw that, that was one of the things that convinced me that maybe this would make an interesting book, because that's the type of thing that nobody expects. I certainly didn't expect it. Right, right. Very uh, counterintuitive, as you say. <laughs> exactly. Great word for mathematician. <laughs> and so is this uh, just sort of ranked choice voting systems, or does approval voting system also get a thing? Approval voting is one of the things that's been considered. There are lots of different voting systems that are being considered. Many, many different ones are implemented. I just looked at five in the book. Some of the ones that are the runoff, there are things that are called instant runoff. There are systems in which if you there are five candidates, you've, uh, you award five points to the, your first choice, four points to your second, and then you total them up. But all these systems have flaws. And the interesting thing is that's how Arrow discovered the impossibility theorem. What he did was he looked at a bunch of different types of ways of implementing an election, tried to see whether or not he could get certain features of that election, uh, certain nice features of an electoral system to hold, such as no dictators or death of a loser shouldn't change the election. And he found that not only couldn't he do it in the particular electoral methods that he looked at, it occurred to him that this might be a much more widespread phenomenon. And this is the type of thing that mathematics is. Mathematics often entails looking at very, very specific examples, getting an idea from the specific examples, and trying to prove it in general. I'm sure that Pythagoras probably noticed that there were a few neat right triangles in which the square of the hypotenuse was equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides, and said, hey, I've tried that for a few right triangles, might hold in general. I'm sure to most people that, in fact, mathematics can make such definite uh, statements about uh, a very loose uh, societal political situation. That's one of the things that we've been discovering over, uh, over, I'd say, the 20th century. If you look at the mathematics that existed through the 19th century, I think it was not only mathematics developed for mathematics, but mathematics for the traditional uses such as the physical sciences, engineering. But I think in the 20th century, what you started seeing was you started seeing mathematics expanding to a much larger framework. I'm not exactly sure what started it, but I think one of the basic works here was the book on economics and the theory of games that von Neumann and Morgenstern wrote in the late 1920s. And this described the mathematics of conflict and like a lot of mathematics books, it lay on the shelf for a while, and then all of a sudden the Second World War comes along, and there are, as you can imagine, lots of conflict situations during a war, and people started looking at this and said, hey, this type of thing is useful. And mathematics over the 20th century, I couldn't even begin to describe all the places that it has penetrated, and some of them, quite frankly, it hasn't done such a successful job on. But in economics, it's obviously been tremendously useful in economics, and it's been used in many of the social sciences, certainly in finance. A lot of the market tools that are used, such as stock options, bonds, etc., are subject to an incredible amount of mathematical analysis. People are continually trying to use mathematics to predict what's going to happen in the stock market. Even if you take a look at a program such as ESPN Sports Science, you see that mathematics is used for analyzing various aspects of sports.
Indeed, indeed. For example, in finance, one of the major developments of recent years in mathematics is, of course, chaos theory, which you have very definite equations, but leading to very almost unpredictable kind of outcomes. Yes, the equations are quite well defined, but what we've found is that chaos consists of several different types of phenomena. Perhaps the most widely known is something called the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect says that equations such as those which govern the weather are so sensitive to small differences in measured variables that if a butterfly flaps its wings in Hawaii, it could determine whether or not there's a tornado in Oklahoma three weeks later. And this is the type of thing that one of those unexpected things that nobody really even had a hint of until the middle of the 19th century. And it turns out that the phenomenon of chaos pervades a lot more things than we might expect. For instance, I was sort of amazed when I was reading Science Magazine in the late 1980s and found that, that the orbit of Pluto was chaotic and that we wouldn't always know where the differences in the gravity poles of the various planets might be so, if they differed by a minuscule amount, Pluto might end up on the other side of, of the solar system. And when I saw that, you know, I thought, wow, Newton would have been stunned at that with his vision of a clockwork universe. Indeed, indeed. What do you think are the greatest uh, unsolved problems in mathematics? Well, I can't really speak for myself, but I can speak for the Clay Institute, who've put up a million dollars each for a bunch of really powerful unsolved problems. And certainly one of them is figuring out the equations concerning weather, because we'd love to be able to predict the weather three to five years in advance, but we'd also like to be able to see whether or not global warming and or global cooling are occurring. But for instance, the one that I found intriguing is the one that relates to one of the situations that's invested investigated in the book. Namely, is it possible to construct schedules perfectly? And we experience the difficulty of schedule construction when we go to pick up our car at the garage and it isn't ready. Some problems are really complex and scheduling seems to be one of them. If you look at a problem such as paying the monthly bills, well, you know, you write out a check, you put it in an envelope, write out another check, put it in another envelope, and you can see the stack of bills dwindling. But if you look at the problem that a garage has in scheduling car repairs, they might try scheduling the various different repairs, and then all of a sudden you get to the end, and you find that all of the four cars in the shop need the hydraulic lift at the same time. Bad schedule. You have to tear it up, start all over again, and even when you get a completed schedule, you can look at it and say, well, suppose that I changed the spark plugs on the Chevy a little earlier. Could I have finished sooner? And it turns out this is an extremely difficult problem and mathematicians they've made a dent in it and that they can get reasonable approximate solutions but nobody knows how to find the best schedule it's often just done by trial and error really <laughs> yeah exactly and incidentally that's a perfectly legitimate mathematical process but nonetheless we'd like to do better we'd like to do a lot better that's why there's a million dollars bounty for finding the solution to that particular problem well, I'm curious, maybe if you just have some final words uh, regarding mathematics, its uh, place in everyday life, and its place for the future. 
Well, I think that what's going to happen is that we're going to find over the next century that mathematics is not only going to solve some of the problems that we've talked about, it's going to penetrate areas that we have no idea that mathematics had any application on, because mathematics is a language, and as soon as you discover new mathematical objects like matrices or vectors or stuff like that, you keep finding new applications for them. But also I think we're going to find that there are limits to what we can know, what we can do, what we can achieve that similar to the results that we looked at in the 20th century, will define even better the universe in which we live to the extent that we'll know much more about what's possible and what isn't. Well, it is, it is certainly very fascinating, and I hope people go take a look at your book. It is How Math Explains the World, A Guide to the Power of Numbers, From Car Repair to Modern Physics. Thank you very much for the opportunity of talking about it. And you were just listening to Professor James Stein discussing how math explains the world. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, can math explain them or not? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if math can explain their behavior or not, and maybe a little reason why. Professor Stein, you ready to play the game? Okay, how much time for fumbling do I have? <laughs> we'll give you all the time you need. Oh, okay. <laughs> Alright, here we go. Person number one, can math explain them or not? O.J. Simpson. Very interesting situation. There are lots of situations involving O.J. Simpson. Number one is his behavior is determined by a lot of the things that have been in his experience. And making decisions is a branch of mathematics called decision theory. But the thing that I would focus on relating to O.J. Simpson is the problem of convicting people in a jury, because there's lots of mathematics surrounding O.J. Simpson. Um, there was the math mathematics of the DNA proof during the O.J. Simpson trial. There's the mathematics concerning can you get a conviction uh, for O.J. Simpson in downtown Los Angeles, and that's going to manifest itself again in can you get a conviction for O.J. Simpson in Las Vegas. Um, and certainly, speaking of places where you can find a lot of mathematics running around, Las Vegas with the odds on the various bets is certainly one. Um, when you look at the mathematics specifically surrounding the O.J. Simpson trial, the murder of his wife, there is almost interesting that the mathematics of the probability that someone else had done it is vanishingly small. I saw several articles on that, but nonetheless, the fact is it didn't convince the jury. Mathematics doesn't explain why mathematics doesn't convince people. All right. Number two is Apple founder Steve Jobs. 
I'm not exactly sure about Jobs' particular decisions, the ones that I remember. I certainly remember that Apple and IBM for a long time were in conflict, and Apple manufactured a very, very a different type of computer than IBM did. And the mathematics, it doesn't so much explain Steve Jobs as it explains some of the decisions that might possibly have been made and the economic uh, defining it, because I think that Jobs and Apple tried to design a different type of computer because they felt that the various economic decisions that IBM had made, such as the decision to bundle certain types of software, the groups of people that they were selling to, they had to take a risk and design a very, very different type of computer with a different... And I think that the mathematics of risk and reward are the ones that would probably be most applicable to Steve Jobs and Apple. Uh, number three is the pop starlet Britney Spears. Well, I think what happens in a case of Britney Spears is this could very well be one of those situations where there's a certain numerical scale that people reach that when they reach that point on a numerical scale, they decide that they don't give a damn. We're talking <laughs> about money. And Britney Spears has certainly done a lot of self-destructive things and a lot of things that destroy her image. But economists discuss something called utility. And utility can be seen in comparison with money because the next dollar, when you only have one dollar in your pocket, obviously amounts to a substantial amount. But when you have a million dollars, the next hundred dollars is meaningless. And so you can afford to do various self-destructive things. And what Britney Spears is, I guess the mathematics doesn't exactly explain what she does, but it can point out that different people have different value systems, these value systems, but there are certain behavioral things that give her more reward points, if you can call it that, than simply making the correct financial decision. Because for all we know, Britney Spears could be Hannah Montana if she had made different decisions. You know, just be a squeaky clean person instead of making the nine or ten million dollars a year that I've heard that Britney Spears makes make 50 million or a hundred million dollars a year but Britney decided that the money wasn't the valuable thing to her being herself and being the type of person that she wanted to be was and I guess another thing that you know I'm not really sure that it's mathematics but you look at the individual decisions that she has made in in case of who she's married what her attitude towards her children are and you think that here's a person who makes really spot decisions, instantaneous decisions, and does a really terrible job of it. <laughs> That's uh, become evidently clear, I think. <laughs> all right, number four is the Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. Uh, well, first of all, practically any Fed chairman is well-grounded in mathematics and economics. So because Bernanke hasn't been around nearly as long as his predecessor, Greenspan, but when you think about what Bernanke has done in terms of mathematics, I think that it's a very, very difficult situation for an economist because an economist has to look at so many different features. And I guess the one thing that I would say is when I think about how mathematics might explain it, I think that economics is one of those systems in which there are so many variables and they fluctuate so crazily that I think it's the type of situation that will be shown, say, in the next century or so, that there's no really good way to predict what is going to happen 
on the basis of the variables that you know. It may be that the economic system is chaotic. It may be that the economic system is subject to, if not uncertainty, unknowability in that whatever equations that I, is that determines the economic system, they might be very well be chaotic ones. Small changes might result in catastrophic results. I'm not a politician nor an economist, but I've always felt that to a certain extent, the country goes on to a large extent independent of what the various people who are running it think. When people as a whole are happy, the economy seems to do pretty well. Um, I remember the 1990s. I'm not sure what Clinton was like as a president, certainly as an individual, he left something to be desired. But everybody was happy. The dot-com boom was going. It was a very good time. And in very good times, it isn't so much what the president does. It's that people think they're very good times. And at the moment, I don't know what history is going to say of George W. Bush, but there have certainly been a lot of very, very difficult times over the past eight years. And as a result, the economy does badly because people are just generally worried, anxious, and discontent. Hmm. Well, I think you partly answered the last one, which was, of course, the president of the United States, George Bush. I, I personally feel that George Bush has, to a large extent, disrespected both math and science. It's well known that basically he has a tendency to suppress mathematical and scientific information that is not in line with his thinking. And even though, because I'm an American, I certainly hope that the country survives and prospers. I hope that when historians look back on what happened under George Bush, they'll see that in many instances he completely ignored the advice of people who had scientific or mathematical expertise, and the result turned out to be catastrophic. Uh, and I certainly hope that future presidents, future politicians will learn that mathematics and science have a significant role to play in determining the course of a nation, and they'll place more reliance in their scientific and mathematical advisors than George Bush did. Indeed, indeed. Well, I certainly hope they'll pay heed to that. And Professor Stein, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing our game and, of course, talking about your book, How Math Explains the World, A Guide to the Power of Numbers from Car Repair to Modern Physics. Thank you again. Thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok's, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.